Welcome everyone to this Orex podcast. I'm Giuseppe Aloy and I do manage the Orex scenario program and today uh, we would like to talk about the current and future role of operational risk scenarios in financial firms. I'm uh, joined today by Steve Bishop, the head of risk information insurance at Orex. Hi, Dean Giuseppe. Thanks for joining us. And Luke Carvick, Research and Information Director at Orex. Hi, Giuseppe. So the, the reason of the podcast is because we had uh, over 2020 a series of conversations with operational risk managers, scenario experts and head of operational risk on the role of uh, operational risk scenarios in their financial firms. The reason of doing that had twofolds. We wanted to better understand what is the, the current use of uh, scenarios in banks and insurers. And also, we wanted to make sure that the Orex scenario program evolution meet the new emerging needs for scenarios. The conversation with those experts was extremely insightful. So, Luke, you have worked with uh, scenario experts and operational risk managers since 10 years. Can you see how, how much scenario has evolved in the operational risk space in recent years? Yeah, sure. Really good question, Giuseppe. Um, it has changed an awful lot. And I think maybe, maybe to explain how I think it's changed, I'll, I'll kind of roll back to the start and try and describe how scenario analysis um, has evolved over those years. So it's always been an important tool in decision making and I think um, it has been used for quite a few years, quite a few decades in various industries and disciplines, but it only really became a mainstream focus for operational risk with the advent of Basel II, which was um, around 15, 20 years ago. And if you have a look back at what, what the text says at that point, it looks very different to really where we are today. It talked about using scenario analysis to really account for gaps in, in modelling that banks may have had. So it talked about using scenarios to adjust parameters in distributions, to adjust correlation assumptions. So really quite technical things and really not much to do with the scenario analysis that we see today. It did make the link between scenarios and external data. That's a really natural link and that's something that we see all over the place now. People use external data to inform their scenarios process. And it used the phrase plausible but severe losses, which is something that, that has stuck, I think. But really, as I said at the start, it was quite a technical use of scenarios and it was really trying to use scenarios to account for some of the things that we really just didn't have data or, or modelling expertise to do. And that was some parameter adjustments and correlation assumptions. And the other thing that, that is pretty well known about the AMA is the rules are very deliberately vague. The intent back then was that uh, best practice would emerge, it would become mainstream, everybody would eventually adopt it, and we would have these, these wonderful ways of measuring operational risk. But in the end, actually, we saw huge diversity, and actually scenarios was one of the most diverse elements 
of the AMA. Um, and I'll go through a, a few of the different ways that it was used. Some people did follow that text, adjust parameters. Some people used it as a way of coming up with pseudo losses, so fake losses that were just added to the mix of actual real losses that they'd experienced to kind of fill out gaps in data. Some people went much further. They started using scenarios as kind of modeling units of measure themselves. And then some people used it, say, as, as a challenger or a benchmark model. So even within those kind of very different uh, uses, we saw diversity by jurisdiction quite significantly. So in the US, for example, scenarios played an incredibly minor role. Their models were almost entirely historical, data-driven. Europe took a different approach sometimes. Some European banks even adopted a model that was almost entirely driven by scenarios. That was part due to data inadequacies, but also part philosophical. Some people believe that actually that kind of historical data wasn't really a good indicator of future loss, so they wanted to use scenarios. So you ended up with a situation where there was lots of different approaches. But one thing we also saw was that the more that you use scenarios, the higher that you're, you are held to account because it is fundamentally a qualitative exercise. There's lots of uh, subjectivity in there. So people layered on governance, bias mitigation. Some people started to try and create models, mini models, they were called in Australia, or fact models in the US. And that was really to try and make the scenario estimation process a little bit more quantitative to decrease the, the challenge that you might have from a more sort of qualitative, subjective process. So that was kind of one direction things were taking in. But, but actually, at the same time, people were also finding that there was huge benefit in just the fact that they were bringing experts together to understand what a severe but plausible event looked like and how they may um, use the outcome from that process to increase uh, risk management. So where we are today, we saw scenarios used in the pandemic. They are front and centre of the work on resiliency used in stress testing across the world in, in different forms. There are subtle differences in the type of scenarios you might develop for those three purposes, but, but the principle of, of getting people together to think about what could go wrong is that common thread. The huge challenge, I think, is that good, robust scenario analysis is quite resource intensive, skilled resources as well. So there is a challenge about bringing those people together. You can get fatigue if you try and do scenarios too frequently. Things may not change year on year. So you have to think about that very carefully. So the big challenge, I think, is, is how do we do scenarios effectively and efficiently? How do we make sure the outcome has a consequence? Uh, and largely that means the outcomes used by the first line, by the experts that have put some, some input into the process. And there is an added benefit that then that loops back and increases engagement with those experts so they're more likely to come back and help when you refresh scenarios. So as I said at the start, starting from that very technical adjustment to a model, we've ended up in a, in a hugely different position. Um, and I think that's very positive, but there are some big challenges with the way that scenarios are done. You are very right indeed, Luke, and uh, I must admit that uh, the first line of defense engagement and also the scenario process optimization are the key challenges that uh, financial institutions are facing nowadays. I'm happy to share a couple of examples on what uh, some of them have already implemented and some other are planning to implement to cope with those two main challenges that you have just highlighted. One is definitely the use of triggers. Triggers are measurable factors that allow you to understand that your risk exposure toward 
a given risk is changing. To give an example of a, a simple trigger might be a huge financial loss you have recently faced for a risk type. Think about internal fraud, for example, or even the number of complaints you receive from customer for a, a given product. The, the use of uh, such triggers allow the firms to understand whether the risk profile is changing or has changed, uh, allow also the, the first line of defense to focus on what is important so they can review the scenario and also it allow the firm to make sure that the scenario portfolio cover the most material risk. The, the, the use of triggers is definitely a, a technique that uh, a few firms uh, are adopting. And therefore, now in, in April, uh, we are going to launch the scenario practice benchmark study where we investigate how the triggers are set up and also how they are used. The other technique widely used is the, the use of drivers. So risk drivers are the factors that influence the scenario severity. By using these drivers concept, banks and insurance can understand what are the, the factors, the elements that drive the risk and also perhaps use it to understand where they want to invest in terms of a mitigation action to reduce their exposure. Look, we recently published the risk exposure methodologies, and uh, I believe there were some good feedback on the use of drivers. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those, as I mentioned earlier, it's one of the ways people are trying to, to give a bit more um, sort of robustness to the estimation process. But it's not just because of that that people like the driver models. They like them because although there is an investment to make time and commitment you need to do to create the model, once you have one, then you can quickly update the prediction. You can change the values of those parameters. You could transplant that particular risk into a different part of your institution or for a different product or whatever it is. So you've done quite a lot of work, but actually it gives you something incredibly powerful that you then can rerun in, in different situations. And it really links to your, your observation on triggers. So you could use a trigger to, to go back and relook at your scenario, but if you've got a factor model, that trigger really is that the variables change value and it will tell you what your new uh, exposure is. So I think it is an area that is emerging. I wouldn't say that anyone has maturity in that yet. And that's partly because of, of the technology needed, but also the time and the effort. But I think if we have this conversation in 10 years' time, we will probably be saying, isn't it amazing the level of use of those factor models compared to 2021? And also, they can play a key role for risk management purposes. I'll pick up on that point. I think we've obviously heard a lot um, in terms of the sort of work to, to move to using risk, risk drivers and, and using that for, for optimization and, and all the other the good reasons that have been described. But I think coming back to the to the conversations that we had with various Forex members and leaders and scenario experts, I think one of the other really recurrent themes that we heard in relation to scenarios and scenario developments was the focus on trying to sort of drive out genuine the risk management benefits from from running the scenarios. I think that definitely signals um, a clear evolution of a process, as, as we heard from Luke, started really to support risk measurement in response to, to sort of Basel requirements and AMA requirements. And I think is really designed to 
increase the value for the participants who are involved in the development of the scenarios. And I think particularly sort of those managers in the first line of defence that do provide so much input to the scenarios. That is a move that will help to move us away from that sort of legacy of demand on management and risk experts to provide information, which I think a lot of them would probably honestly say going back five or 10 years was all about providing data for what they saw as a sort of black box modelling process. And I think they felt probably historically like they'd put a lot of effort in um, for what was sort of minimal benefit to them as a, as a manager, uh, as opposed to what it was providing sort of organisationally. When we were talking to the banks and insurers, there were a number of examples of trying to deliver risk management value that came out. The first and one of the most common builds on the work that Giuseppe described and that Luke's referred to around sort of development of risk drivers and understanding the link as well to the, to the most important controls that relate to the scenario. People are trying to drive that understanding of the relationship between the drivers and the controls and trying to bring the scenarios back to the reality of day-to-day management of the business. So what are the controls that they should focus on that, that scenarios are most dependent on? And I think that's sort of given real opportunity to sort of follow up on the scenario process, to either look at specific controls or, or to monitor those controls through the risk and control self-assessment process and really linking the scenarios into the wider operational risk framework. We also heard as well, one of the, the criticisms of scenarios is that they, they don't mean much to the day-to-day management. They can often be looked at in terms of a sort of a one in 25, one in 30, one in 40 year event. Um, and we've also heard people trying to sort of mitigate that by looking at higher frequency scenarios, something like a one in 10 year event to allow sort of more focus on the controls associated with a more plausible event. Coming back to my point, that information is really, really being used to try and drive management action. I think we heard examples which we found quite interesting of that information being used to help to support decisions on investment in the control environment, for example. I think if a bank or an insurer is able to sort of demonstrate that investing in a control helps sort of potentially reduce the capital requirement around a scenario, there's a sort of genuine financial driver to making that, that investment. The second main benefit that we heard described was um, around sort of building of of playbooks to support a scenario. So often these would set out how a bank or an insurer would respond if a scenario did materialise, a sort of crisis response plan, if you like. That's been particularly relevant for scenarios that relate to risks that have risen in prominence in in recent years and where organisations don't have a great deal of experience in managing such events often for things like cyber attacks or or looking at significant failures in their supply chain, running a scenario and understanding how that scenario would affect their business, how could they respond, what sort of actions should they take. That's a real sort of value add different to just generating some numbers to, to calculate capital. I think it's where we're seeing that link starting to emerge between the sort of scenario frameworks and the work to manage operational resilience as well. And you can see that clear connection there. Can I ask, Steve, do you think that uh, this kind of playbook can be seen as a tangible output that uh, may increase the engagement from the first line? They they can see the the value of, of the scenario exercise. Now, that's absolutely right. So their focus is then sort of taking that playbook away and either looking at actions that they need to take in relation to it or 
or understanding how they would respond if one of those sort of extreme events did occur. And I think I think that's a really useful benefit for, for a first line manager as opposed to sort of taking those numbers out for modelling. You're absolutely right. Just to sort of wrap up on some of the things that we heard on driving risk management benefits, we heard um, a few examples from the banks and insurers. I think there's often work that's going on to look at how the range of scenarios and capital levels compare to corporate insurance coverage. So people thinking about the, the types of corporate insurance policies that they're buying, as well as the sort of limits that are in place for those those policies and how appropriate are they. And then we've also sort of seen an effort to link to the wider risk framework with scenarios. So it's, we heard of the information being used to inform risk appetite statements, so maybe to help set limits around levels of risk exposure or, or capital limits. And then we also saw uh, and heard work that's going on to really connect scenarios to, to the risk and control self-assessment process. So understanding for a particular scenario, what are the risks it relates to, what are therefore the key controls, and vice versa, questioning when they're undertaking risk and control self-assessment about whether they have a, a scenario that supports and, and assesses the more material risks. So, so I think overall, some really sort of positive developments that, that are being driven. But I think the one challenge that the banks and insurers still have, uh, and it was highlighted by the discussions we had with our operational risk leadership community as well, is that the scenario framework can still be seen as to process and governance heavy. And although that's often still for sort of regulatory compliance reasons, it doesn't quite match up to this desire to, to use the framework for more active risk management. It means that the scenarios can often still be seen by the first line, I think, as being sort of too, too, too burdensome. To be honest, uh, Steve, I'm, I'm glad you say that because this is one of the feedback we heard on the operational risk framework, especially from the head of operational risk. They expressed the idea that uh, operational risk should be seen as um, support to business rather than be a compliance function. And to do that, they need a, a tool set that allow to quickly identify and assess risks. So I think that uh, today we have summarized pretty well what the scenario journey, so Luke has explained what was the historical reason of running scenarios, why banks and insurance did establish it in the first place. Steve described what financial institutions are doing currently, so it, they are working on uh, the process optimization and also how to add value to risk management. Luke or Steve, do you have any final comment? I was just going to add one thing. I do think, I mean, the proof that scenario analysis is, is incredibly helpful and useful is that it's the diversity of places that it's used in. So we've heard how it was used for risk management, for resilience. It's about working back from something that has happened, working out the conditions that led to that. For stress testing, it's more about looking at the an expected event, maybe under stress conditions. For capital models, it's about thinking about something quite extreme and unlikely. But it's used in all of those cases, which shows that it's very helpful. But also, I think the subtle differences between them is one of the big challenges. And I think this is what you've touched on, Giuseppe, is that, that people need to be very careful that they're adapting the, the way that they do scenarios to fit what particular use they're using them for. And that's where you run into the, the challenges around the scenario process being very long-winded and governance heavy. 
because that's what you do when you're looking at capital and that may not be appropriate when you're using it for something else. So it's both the proof that it's a, a good technique, but also one of its downfalls, I think, that it is used in such a diverse set of areas. That's come up in discussions with our working group that's looking at the sort of resilience regulatory requirements. And there's the need, as I mentioned earlier, to sort of test resilience using scenarios. That's a slightly different way to the way you'd think about a, a scenario for capital. As an industry, there's a real strong desire to try and sort of leverage all the good work that's been undertaken over the last sort of 10, 15 years and, and to be able to adapt the framework to do that rather than sort of reinventing the wheel. So I think the sentiment's absolutely there. Some of the discussions that we'll continue to have with our ORX scenarios working group, the resilience working group, are going to really look to sort of explore how that transition's made. How do you leverage the framework? How do you avoid duplication? whilst meeting both objectives. I think there'll be some interesting discussions over the course of the next 12 to 18 months on that. Thanks a lot, Luke and Steve. And I think that this leads us to the end of, of the podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. And don't forget that you can download the white paper from your ex website, orex.org, where you can also find more about the Orex scenarios and other Orex services. Thanks a lot for your time. Mm-hmm.